Welcome to Knowledge Counts, a podcast of the Canadian Institute of Quantity Surveyors. I'm Wendy Hobbs. Today we're talking to Ben Ellard about brownfield development. Ben, what is a brownfield? So what's a brownfield? Um, generally speaking, a brownfield is a previously developed site. So a site that's had some industrial activity or a site where there's the potential for contamination, right? The potential for soil contamination, groundwater contamination, or you know, likely those two air, airborne contaminations generally are coming from something active, right? Rather than something that's on a site, but it could be industrial activities. It could be manufacturing activities. It could be oil and gas. It could be, you know, a gas station. Any number of sites can be brownfield. Dry cleaners, you know, every small town in Alberta has a main street, right? And a main street's going to have uh, a gas station or two, a dry cleaner or two, probably a mechanic service station or two, every small town, right? And as scale that up to a community like Calgary, right? And the sites just scale up along with it. So figuring out what we can do with them is often the challenge. How do we put in proper controls? How do we make sure that we can continue doing meaningful activities on the site rather than leaving derelict sites that just become eyesores to our communities. Um, I think there's an active push to find ways to engage with these, you know, these sites. Some companies are seeing business opportunities in them, right, because they can get properties for reduced land cost and they can factor in any kind of remediation or contamination abatement that they need to do into their land development costs and then that ultimately in terms transfers over into the develop or the development cost right uh, real estate stuff not my deal what are the advantages of using a brown field versus a green field yeah a greenfield site would be a site where no developments happened before right where um or very light activity has happened so you know, developing on rangeland or agricultural land would very often be considered a greenfield development because the the level of activities are pretty measurable. The amount of, um, depending on the type of agricultural operations or the type of, ra- of ranching operations, I guess, you might have some issues. But generally speaking, gr- for greenfields to happen, communities need to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, right? And we don't have an infinite number of green space. Uh, greenfield sites available. So looking inwards, looking at sites that have already seen activity, and rather than saying, oh, well, I guess we've done something there. Uh, I guess we can't do anything there anymore. Let's move on and find another place to wreck. You know, let's take a look there and see what we can do. And I think the big challenge is figuring out how there's not a lot of benevolent companies out there that are just out there doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Companies are out there to make money, right? So figuring out a way to, um, I guess, monetize that development so i mean your question was what makes a brownfield advantageous over a greenfield right so it negates the need to expand outwards right so it it allows communities to densify a little bit rather than expanding outwards so there's some some really big social payoffs in terms of um, urban growth limits but what i really see is maintaining a sense of community right when you have that densification when you have, you show care in your community, you don't leave these sites derelict. It builds a sense of pride. You know, you see communities like Quarry Park developing in Southeast Calgary, and now the new Curry Barracks, which I think is just called Calgary Curry. You know, both of these are old brownfields that uh, a developer has seen an opportunity to build an entire community on and create a community where there is derelict and unusable space. Benefits would, I think, would include land costs, 
which you have to ultimately factor in that there's some contamination involved. But I, I see the strongest benefits being sort of so on the social side of things. What would you tell a developer who might be reluctant to use a brownfield? I, I think the argument would be that, um, you know, a lot of brownfields already have very established connections, right? So uh, utilities are often very close. Maybe they're already connected to the site, um, you know, in terms of power, in terms of uh natural gas in terms of um, water and sewer services and stuff like that. You may be able to get the, the land at a reduced land cost, um, depending on uh, the owner and their position. Some owners are more obstinate than others and, you know, they're determined to get their dollar and they'll just sit on their, on their properties. But the opportunity would be quantifying what you have, knowing what's there when you go into it, right? So and I, I think that applies to any develop, any, I'll call it, use the word brownfield, but maybe in a less traditional term. If you're going to redevelop a 1950s bungalow or a 1950s fourplex near the corner of, let's say, Heritage and uh, Elbow Drive, right, where there was probably a gas station on each corner in 1950s or 1960s because that was the edge of town, right? There's a reasonable possibility that when you're working on this property over here across the alley, from uh, where an old service station is, you may encounter something. So being aware, regardless of the site that you're developing, right? Knowing that if you're developing inside an urban boundary, that there's the, there's depending on where you are, there's the potential um, for some contamination. I mean, brownfields typically are larger sites that are in need of a shepherd, I guess. And um, I think there's some good PR that comes out of it. Right, Remington developers certainly got a lot of really good PR out of their uh, Quarry Park development. And actually they make a, a sort of a business model out of doing brownfield work, finding sites that are undervalued by communities. Maybe they're owned by an owner that wants to divest of them. And anytime you're in a situation like that where an owner needs to get rid of a property, you can make a proposition to acquire the property at your terms rather than at their terms. Knowing the level of contamination is the big deal, right? Don't go into it with, not going into it with blinders on. So finding out what environmental assessments have been done previously. And if it's, if it's a true brownfield site, they'll exist. Um, so it's just a question of not whether or not the owners disclose the information or not, right? So, I mean, if they don't disclose the information, you're not going to make the deal. If they do disclose the information, you know, you can make an educated decision as to, you know, once you've sort of quantified what type of contaminants you're dealing with and where they are and how to address them, then you can sort of build a business model around that. I mean, are you going to be leaving contamination in place? It's certainly possible. Are you going to be removing the contamination? How are you going to be removing the contamination? How are we going to remediate the site? What's going to happen on the site after? Um, all of those decisions can, you know, are going to be, I'll say sort of very site specific. So even, you know, take a look at a, a, a large development like Curry Barracks. You know, as a former military barracks, they're going to turn it into a large residential commercial development. You know, there'll be multi-story developments, there'll be side-by-side developments, there'll be um, single-family homes, there'll be commercial businesses. And they've gone and planned out the community to ensure that sensitive activities like kids' playgrounds and residences where there's basements and there's kids and there's seniors and stuff like that aren't where there's likely to be contamination in place. 
or unless they're going to be excavating it out, in which case that happens as part of your developments anyways. We do lots of cut and fill. Our cut's going to be contaminated in this case, so we have to factor that in terms of a disposal cost. So sites where, or locations within a development like that where, you know, there's contamination in place and for whatever reason, they're not able to remove it. You know, they can put in control measures to ensure that no one's exposed to the contamination, right? That could be the, the, the structure that they put in place. Um, that's a physical barrier. Um, how, what type of business op or what type of operations happen within that structure is an operational control or administrative control. So there's all kinds of things we can do once we decide to develop a brownfield to ensure that the public is protected going forward. Companies use strategic planning when developing a new site. How would they do that with a brownfield? In terms of how developers would plan out a large-scale development like Curry Barracks or uh, Quarry Park, let me start with a caveat that I'm not a developer, right? I, I'm, so I'm, I'm a bit familiar with their process, but I'm not intimately familiar with their process. So they're going to take a look at all the data available. And for, for a site like bo both Curry Barracks and Quarry Park, there's reams of very localized environmental data for the site. So what happened around this particular facility at the Curry Barracks? What happened around this particular area at Quarry Park? Um, we know that there's contamination. Where is it? And so it'll be quantified. They'll understand, okay, well, this is where, this is where a munitions building was, or this is where a vehicle service building was. So they'll target their investigations around those areas. Um, this is where quarters were, right? This is where we had a gravel pile, right? We weren't actually, you know, using heavy equipment over here or um, storing heavy equipment over here. We we're just excavating. There'll be areas where we can predict contamination will be and where we can predict it won't be. So they'll take all of the data that's available and, and that's modeled three-dimensionally, right? It's not just a, the horizontal extents, but the vertical extents as well. So they'll take a look at what their ideal cut fill plans for a community would be. You know, where do we want to have, how do we want our community to structure? How is it going to tie into the community around us? Those things are less flexible, right? Um, Curry Barracks has a couple of roads in and a couple of roads out. Those aren't going to change in a significant way. So planning how they, you know, they can look at the contamination and say, okay, well, you know, if we want to have residences, they can't be here. The contamination is going to be, we're not, our cut plans aren't, we're not going to be able to remediate the site. And sometimes that's not the goal of a brownfield development is remediating the site. Sometimes there's an acknowledgement that some contamination is going to have to be left in place, right? So the, uh, the government has protocols in place called um, the exposure control guidelines for specifically for sites where we have to leave contamination in place and life's going to go on. And sometimes it's because it's cost prohibitive. Sometimes it's because it's uh, just, it's physically inaccessible. We can only dig so deep. We can only pump so much. We can only pump for so long. So in those instances, the developers will acknowledge that and they'll work with the, the government to say, okay, so our plan is to do this. We're going to structure our community like this. So the residences are over here. Um, we want to have multi-story developments here. We're going to be excavating down four stories to build the parkade structure. That's going to remove this volume of uh, contaminated soil. It's going to get stockpiled over here with these other 
sort of segregated volumes from other areas that we excavate, that'll all get disposed of appropriately uh, and obviously not used as, fill, as backfill material. So how they plan their developments, you know, this is where we're going to be digging down four stories for a parkade. They can target that to um, remove some key contaminant areas and that comes with an extra cost. It's going to be obviously they have to pay more to dispose of it of the tipping fees for contaminated soil or I'm speculating about two or three times the, the price of, of a tipping fee for non-contaminated soil, right? If not more. So they'll factor that in and I don't think there's, I mean, they may be able to get assistance from a government program like the Orphan Well program to assist with some of the, the offset some of the costs, but I think they're, they get their value in the land cost when they, that's, that's their part of the deal. They got this for cheap, now they're gonna do what they can they'll dispose will be on them. And so now they've gone and done these strategic sort of, let's remove these core areas. There's not a lot of risk in having a, a parkade, well-ventilated parkade, right? Very transient activity. No one's hanging out in the parkade watching sports for 24 hours a day. That's the challenge with the residents, right? If you build um, a house with a basement in contaminated soil, Right, uh, vapors are low uh, basements are low-lying areas that where we can trap certain vapors that are heavier than air. So, in some residences where we have new residences where there um, the airflow doesn't change very much, um, contaminants can ultimately migrate through the concrete floor and cause long-term health effects. Right, so we try to make sure that if there's going to be dwellings, that they're structured where there's no risk of contamination, right? That's, um, th I mean, that's risk management 101. Uh, it, where we have the highest levels of contamination, what development can we put there that's going to be the safest, right? So there's regulatory guidelines in place that can help us, right? So Alberta has uh, exposure control, or sorry, um, Alberta has the tier one and tier two soil and groundwater remediation guidelines. So, and they specify specific contamination values, acceptable contamination values for hundreds of different types of contaminants. So, and, and for a residential site, for an agricultural site, for a parkland area, for a commercial site or an industrial site. So they may say, given the nature of historical activities here, uh, and given the nature of, our, of what we need to do in the region, it makes most sense for us to structure our commercial activities or our industrial activities here, because the guideline values will be more favorable. We don't have to remediate to the uh, as high of a level as we would need to if we were putting in a residence because the risks are lower, right? The people are more transient, right? No one lives in a commercial area. They come, they work, they leave, right? So yeah, I think there's a very, very, very high level of planning and, and it comes down to smart business, right? Maximizing your ability to make a profit on the land that you're developing while satisfying one of the goals, which is, I won't say remediating, but um, adding value where previously there was none, right? If, if you've just said, okay, you can do some work at Curry Barracks, but you know you don't need to touch any of the contamination, they'd only be able to do developments in certain little pockets where there's no risk of contamination at the site. So they want to do a holistic development, and with that comes the obligation to look after the contamination that they find in place. So they're going to need to go in and 
part of it will be covered by their normal cut and fill. Part of it will be covered by their road planning, right? Leaving contamination under a roadway is that's reasonable risk management, right? Because there's not a lot of, of, of risky activities. No, there's no... There's no risk of contamination to be taken up into plants that are going to get into, you know, in people's gardens or anything like that. There's no risk of kids playing in the dirt and, you know, getting contamination. So they may plan their roads to go past some of the, you know, contaminated areas. They may use some of the contaminated material as base for some of their roads. That, that happens in more rural areas, I think, than in urban areas. But it's all just, it ultimately becomes a cost planning exercise and a risk management exercise once you get down to it. Green building rating systems like LEED give developers points for developing on a brownfield. Do you think that incentivizes using a brownfield? In terms of how carrots, incentives like LEED, um, in terms of what they offer developers to come to a brownfield site, uh, I'll be honest and say I'm not intimately familiar with LEED and, their, and the scoring system in LEED, so I don't know the points for developing a brownfield site versus the points associated with using a particular glazing type on your windows or, or whatever. But um, I would imagine that d the developers will certainly look at it and, and, and they'll do a value evaluation. They'll take a look at the cost of developing on, the cost of developing on a brownfield, which can only be quantified to a certain extent because there's always there's a can of worms. There's just unknown factors when you're stepping into uh, a brownfield. So there's a little bit of a risk factor. Um, they'll take a look at the, um, the points that they can get from that and they'll weigh it against the points that they can get from spending money elsewhere on other um, green initiatives in their building, whether it's, you know, green energy supply, putting in a different glazing system, putting in different heat recovery system, whatever. There's all kinds of different ways companies can. I use the term cook the books for lead because um, I think there's a, I do think there's a lot of that. Companies cooking the books for lead. But um, if we're looking at companies doing it for their, doing it for the right reasons, I think companies just make pragmatic business decisions and they, they say, okay, well, um, we, we know we want to have uh, a LEED certified building or we want to have a LEED gold building, we want to have a LEED platinum building. Um, what's going to help us get there, right? And they'll, they will, depending on the target that they choose, find the, the most effective way to get there, right? So getting cheap land cost and LEED points, I think is an effective way to get a head start, right? You're reducing your input costs um, in terms of your your um, your land costs, and then you're um, you're getting lead points right off the bat, right? So you're giving yourself a, two benefits in one little step. Um, that said, I'd like to I'd I'd love to see greater incentives in developing brownfields. I think that uh, on a personal note, so uh, right near my house, uh, the uh, the red line the West LRT went, uh, so it's not far from my house. And uh, as part of the development, the city moved Ernest Manning High School and tore down the old Ernest Manning High School. So now there's, where the, where the Ernest Manning High School used to be is this massive vacant lot that 
Brownfield or Brownfield or otherwise, I think there's, I don't, I think the contam any contamination associated with the shops at the high school has been removed. But seeing opportunity for development in the middle of an urban area, whether it's uh, a marginal Brownfield site like the Ernest Manning High School or something more significant like uh, Fire Park up in, uh, up in the Northeast or uh, the old Canada Creosote site downtown where uh, the Greyhound bus station is and the Pump House Theatre, uh, Mercedes-Benz dealership. There's, I mean, there's activities happening on those sites, but I don't know if they're, they're socially meaningful or uh, meaningful to the community in a larger sense. So from my perspective, I'd love to see the government working with institutions like LEED to put extra incentives on developing properties like that so that we can, I guess, maximize our opportunity, right? We're, as we grow in communities, using the space that we have available, um, keeping people in closer proximity to each other, to closer proximity to where they work, uh, to where they play, to where they socialize, uh, only adds value to communities, right? It's hard to put that into economic dollars and cents, and ultimately, it's the economic dollars and cents that drive development. So it might take something like LEED or other, we'll call them green initiatives, to add extra incentive, right? Because if, if we can't do it on a dollars and cents perspective, we can do it on marketing. That's what LEED is. Earlier, you mentioned that one of the advantages of a brownfield is that the services are already there. This is obviously a benefit to the developer and to the municipality. What do municipalities do to encourage brownfield development? In terms of what cities can do or do do to encourage brownfield development, Calgary has uh, an entity, a business entity called the Calgary Municipal, I believe it's called the Calgary Municipal Land Corporation. And they are responsible, they're, they're like, a real estate agency, but they're they are a Cal they they're a business a business unit for the city of Calgary. So they manage all the properties that are owned by the city of Calgary, and they're responsible for finding suitable suitable developers for um, for those properties. And sometimes, like I was mentioning earlier, that plays into a bigger regional development plan. We know we're going to sit on this site for fifteen years until these other businesses roll over. We can acquire the land, then we can do a bigger development. And they write that into their business costs. But uh, ultimately, it plays into their, their wooing strategies, right? They'll use, they'll use land that they, that they own. That's part of the challenges. So the Municipal Land Corporation works with city-owned properties. There's all kinds of other properties that are brownfields that are just owned by people, right? You know, Fire Park up in the Northeast, where the old Firestone Firestone plant was, right by the Mac, across Memorial Drive from the Max Bell Arena. My understanding is it's owned by uh, a wealthy man from Montreal, and he just has no interest in doing anything with it or talking to anyone with it. He, you know, it makes a little bit of money off of the tenants that are in the distribution center that's on the site now, but. He doesn't want to, until the, the government forces his hand to remediate it, the city's not pushing anyone his way. So that's a long way of me saying I'm not entirely certain what the city's doing to incentivize brownfield development. They, they can, I think, try to pair, you know, to, their, to the level that they can, pair prospective developers with, or with landowners that may have sites available. But I think 
I think a lot of that is just the the commercial real estate market, right? Certain clients are going to have find uh, need certain land. Certain realtors are going to be connected with industrial properties over residential properties. So where the city has an opportunity to incent development is really on the properties that they own, which are quite a few, right? There are properties that where businesses go under and the city ends up almost inheriting the land and inheriting the contamination. This is what where the West Village was going to go and the, uh, the Calgary Next Arena. I mean, I think that's all uh, city-owned land that's leased to the businesses that are on there, right? Because the, the Canada Creosote, Creosote site that was there before, you know, when it went, when it went down, the city owned the land. Refinery Park down in the southeast, um, across from the, um, the Bonniebrook Wastewater Treatment Plant, across Deerfoot from that, uh, is another site. It's owned by owned by the city now. You know, Imperial Oil closed down their operations, followed the closure protocol and and whatnot of the day when they closed down, and the city acquired the land. And the protocol today wasn't significant enough to remove the contamination. So there's a lot of contamination there. And the city now owns the land and therefore owns a stake in the contamination and they can work with Imperial Oil, but finding a developer that can come in and do something with a site that's got levels of contamination that are that significant is a pretty big challenge. So they have opportunities and they use them where they can, but you know, uh, I think as you see with the Calgary Next arena that went, the city of Calgary almost got saddled with a $200 million remediation tag that conveniently got missed, sorry, you didn't see my air quotes, missed off the, uh, the budget proposal. You know, I think developers, developers may not be forthright about all the, all the things that they encounter. I think that's another risk associated with brownfield development. So I think the city needs to be mindful when and how they incentivize, right? Because there's liability for them associated with it, right? Financial and civic liability. The Calgary East Village is an example of a municipal brownfield development. What are your thoughts on that project? Uh, I do know that it took a lot of diligent planning and a lot of big picture thinking, right? A lot of people had to really sit and put the, the carrot really quite a ways down the road to say, like, this is the vision for the area. And they had to, the East Village isn't a single developer. Right? It's, it's multiple developments working together to create this new part of the community. And, you know, there's some big anchor tenants in there that, you know, the first, the, honestly, the first few tenants that were in there were the drop-in center, the Salvation Army, and the Orange Lofts, right? Those were the first three new developments then to, to go into that region. So you've got Orange Lofts were affordable, trendy lofts, the... Salvation Army and the Drop-In Centre were both, you know, uh, housing for disadvantaged Calgarians. And I think there was a big stigma for a long period in terms of following the Orange Lofts into that community because of the social housing programs going on. But once the National Music Centre anchored down where the King Eddie was and across the road, uh, you know, and we have this architectural masterpiece that's there, the, the new central library that's where was a surface parking lot. There's an LRT. The surface parking lot, I think, had, I think had some contamination associated with the police service lot that's just across the road. So I think the, the central library helped develop a little bit of that. And then just painting this picture for what the East Village could be 
and just they didn't stop when the orange lofts came in and it, st and it stagnated for 10 years they didn't stop putting the carrot in front of people they didn't stop beating the drum and it took it took hipsters to make it happen it's true it's true so I, I think the big in my opinion the big catalyst for the east village is the simmons block right so so the simmons block is it's a heritage building uh used to be simmons Mat mattress factory it's an old 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 old, old brick building that they, that they decided not to tear down right so i want to say it's charbar i think is the the restaurant that's in there anyways um internationally respect internationally known chef established a restaurant there uh, a couple of coffee shops came into the same building and brought uh, a pulse right so we had that we had the orange lofts and then you had this pulse coming from the simmons block and then it just sort of went from there now once it gets some momentum right and i think that's something that I called them hipsters earlier, but I'll use the the the, the younger generation is doing really really well is getting momentum behind things because that's a lot of it, right? I mean, incentives as financial incentives aside, there's a lot to be said for momentum. I want to be doing that too. I want I want to play that game. That looks like a lot of fun, right? Like when one development looks non-feasible, right, on its own five developments together might collectively become a winning proposition, right? So that's where I think the city did a really good job in there in terms of they didn't look away from their, their vision, right? This is what we want. Let's keep going. We know that we can bring it in. I think they can do the same thing where they were calling it the West Village. And, and you know, to be honest, I think that the, the Calgary Next, it was a really viable proposition for the land. Right? It would have brought the density needed to address the contamination there. Without a development of that size and scope, I don't know what will come. It'll take a long time, I think, for that site to, to change shape. But it worked out on the east side. We can work on the west side. It'll just take time. Thank you to Ben Allard for speaking with us today about Brownfield site development. For Knowledge Counts, I'm Wendy Hobbs.